Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel on New Books Network. This podcast actually will be uh, housed in New Books in Buddhist Studies, um, although uh, I typically do uh, podcasts for Indian religions, um, I have the delight today of speaking with one of my colleagues on the Buddhist Studies podcast channel at New Books Network, Dr. Kate Hartman, who is Assistant Professor of Buddhist Studies in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Wyoming. And more to the point of our podcast, she is the Director of Buddhist Studies Online. Hey, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Raj. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. All of our worlds are colliding. Our podcast worlds, our online worlds, our, our scholarly worlds. Uh, I don't know what's happening, but we'll figure it out by the end of this podcast. So I received um, I received uh, a, a, an interesting, uh, engaging, gripping email uh, a few days ago, last week, before the weekend. And that email said that Boom, there's a new platform in existence, a learning platform. Uh, It's called Buddhist Studies Online. And so how did that come about? Yeah, so Buddhist Studies Online is a new online learning platform focused on providing um, accessible, affordable, and high-quality content in the history, philosophy, and practices of Buddhism. And how it got started is actually the founder of Buddhist Studies Online, Seth Powell, Um, has already founded a company that's very similar, yogic studies. And so he founded this three years ago to similarly provide accessible, affordable, high quality courses in the history and philosophy of yoga. And the goal in that situation was to say, hey, look, there's so many people who practice yoga, who are interested in yoga, but who feel that the level of sort of intellectual rigor of their practice was perhaps something that could be added to. And then you had all this great research on the academic side, but it was inaccessible to most people who couldn't take a year or two and thousands of dollars to go study at SOAS or Harvard or all of these things. And so uh, yogic studies jumped in to sort of bridge those two worlds. And it's been incredibly successful. Lots of people have a hunger for this kind of intellectual engagement with the history and philosophy of something that they're already interested in. And demand boomed, especially in lockdown, as we're all, you know, online and wanting to have more engagement. And so Seth started thinking, well, first he started getting requests from yogic study students saying, hey, we're really interested in Buddhism. You know, a lot of the same people interested in yoga are interested in meditation or mindfulness. Are you going to order offer more courses on Buddhism? And so Seth was, you know, kicking it around and decided that he wanted to expand the Yogic Studies Network and by offering a sister site in Buddhist studies. And actually, kind of how I came into the picture comes back around to the podcast, Raj. So I'm happy to tell that story as well. To new books, new books in Hindu studies? Yeah. So, so, so yeah, for those of you listening, I actually host the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. I'm not sure uh, this probably will be cross-posted to a bunch of channels because of how um, all-encompassing this discussion is. And so apparently uh, I'm learning. I've literally just met Kit met Kate today. I'll tell you the story of, of, of my email exchange with Seth, but um, I'm now learning that Kate is a listener of New Books in Indian Religions, formerly New Books in Hindu Studies. And so what does that podcast have to do with this platform? 
So I was doing, you know, usually what I do on Sundays, you know, doing laundry or washing dishes or something like that, and listening to, to new books in Hindu studies, because I'm a first year assistant professor. My time for ability to read all the scholarship that comes out in our field is greatly diminished. And so I love the New Books Network because it allows me to, in the course of an hour, you know, get sort of the main idea, the main uh, methods, approaches, contributions from a book. And so I was listening to New Books in Hindu Studies, and specifically I was listening to the episode with Amanda Lucia about white utopias, her recent book. And in the course of that conversation, you and Amanda were actually mentioning Seth Powell and mentioning yogic studies as, you know, one of the things that, you know, I believe you called like the future of the humanities. And so I will take all the blame for that in case you're getting heat for that. But yes, in my estimation, uh, much to his terror, I'm sure, with all the pressure that puts on him. But, uh, you know, in my view, what he's doing is um, is paving the way for, for many a humanities scholar down the road. We'll speak more about that on education. Please continue the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Seth and I go way back because we were both graduate students at Harvard. We were both advisees of um, the great Anmonius. And um, but he, you know, moved back to California. I moved out to Wyoming, and you know, you know how it gets sometimes with your friends. You don't text them for a while. But I heard Seth's name. And I said, I wonder how Seth's doing. I'm going to text him and say hello. And meanwhile, he had been having this sort of process of deciding he wanted to expand into Buddhist studies. And so he goes, you know, it's funny that you texted right now. I was thinking about you. And within 30 minutes, we were on a Zoom talking about what Buddhist studies online might look like. Oh, sure. He may, you know, he may shy away from uh, the mantle that I'm I'm donning him with, but deep down inside, he might know it's true because look what he's doing now Uh, with Buddhist studies. It's fantastic. Um, I, you know, to be honest, I speak into a black box uh, (laughs) in midtown Toronto in the holy city of Toronto on the banks of Lake Ontario. Um, And, it's not like a YouTube channel where there are comments, or it's not like I really know all who listens. I've come to learn that many of our colleagues listen, and many students listen, apparently, that show up in, in my courses. Um, but it's it's so, um, it's slightly surreal, but rewarding to know that the podcast has that kind of impact, and people listen, and, and, and they get some thinking, gets them acting. That's really cool. Um now, <laughs> that's not, I did not know that before inviting you to the podcast. I basically got this email and I had Seth on, on the New Books in Then Hindu Studies podcast, now New Books in Indian Religions podcast over the summer. Because um, with, the, with, the, with the onset of the pandemic, it was abundantly clear to me um, through my work at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies and my private online courses uh, now congealed into the School of Indian Wisdom, it's abundantly clear that uh, never before has there been such a thirst and need for for uh, quality online content. And I had him on the podcast to talk about yogic studies. I really, really believe in what he's doing there, and I think it's fantastic for our colleagues at the Academy. It's fantastic for continuing studies learners to have you know quality education, um, so we've sort of come full circle now with the formation of Buddhist studies and now having you um, on this podcast that you sometimes co-host. So I feel like we're in the middle of a piranha where there's a backstory for everything. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. There has to be a pure piranha tie-in. 
Of course. There has to, uh, has to of be. Of course, of course. For those of you who don't know, um, uh, Purana or, or, or um, Indian mythological narratives is my primary um, object of study. Um, so this platform comes into being, and what is the vision? So, so who's it for? What's sort of the pedagogical approach? So our vision for Buddhist Studies Online, as I said, is to provide you know accessible, affordable, high-quality content that bridges the world of the kind of maybe the person who's interested has tr- tried mindfulness, has read about something, maybe has visited a couple Buddhist centers, and the academic world of Buddhist studies, uh, because those two worlds have been at some points overly disconnected. People feel that they're sort of out there in the world of fake Buddha quotes and, you know, gimmicky marketing nonsense. And so, and they want to know more about the history and the philosophy of these practices that get talked about increasingly in our modern world. And so we at Buddhist Studies Online want to fill that gap, have one foot firmly planted in the kind of academic rigor of the academy, the sort of contemporary research and the critical approaches, but one foot out in this public that has a hunger to know more about Buddhism. Yeah, that, that, that divide or that, that bridging is, um, you know, I'm realizing more and more it's a way of life for me. I didn't do it consciously when I set out, but everything from the podcast to, um, weekend schools at the OCHS to, um, you know, just public talks. And I think it's really, really crucial that we bridge the scholarly public divide. And I think doing so in a sensible manner doesn't at all diminish or dilute or short sell um, scholarly research. It actually, um, um, it, 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 it gives it, it, it gives it greater reach and even possibly greater meaning because uh, people are understanding the power of what's done in, at the ivory tower. Um, so I'm probably preaching to the choir, though I don't think I'm preaching at all, but it, it just seems to me that this is the way of the future. Yes. I think that it's, um, increasingly important for us as scholars to think of the multiple audiences to whom we're responsible. And of course, sort of primary for a lot of us is going to be the people reading our academic research and, you know, make sure, making sure that it's rigorous and well-sourced and contributing to the field. Another is to, you know, if we are in a traditional academic institution, to our students that are there. Um, but we also, I think, have a responsibility to and in fact, perhaps I should say opportunity instead of responsibility to address a broader public that is interested in the stuff that we do. Sometimes I think we in the academy sell ourselves really short that, you know, oh, we teach this thing that no one's really interested in, the humanities are under attack and religious studies is, you know, getting eliminated and, oh, you know, this this great sadness. Um, But actually what I've found engaging with publics is that people are fascinated by what we do. They want to learn more and they want to do so in a way that is grounded in these sort of principles of history, philosophy, and um, a kind of academically minded approach, you know. So we're not aiming to replace traditional instruction by Buddhist teachers or lineage holders or anything like that. We're not going to be teaching meditation. We're not going to be teaching the practices themselves. We think that that's a space that others are more qualified to fill. But yeah. <laughs> you know, we, with the background in the academy, 
do have something to offer to folks who maybe want to complement their practice-based approach, or you know, maybe they don't practice at all, but they're just interested in the history. We do have something to offer people. That's a really, it's really interesting. It's a really important distinction that you raise, um, not just the 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 academy public divide, which. Uh, which which one could think of in various other disciplines in the humanities, but particularly in religious studies, uh, this, to use a really crude sort of religious studies, divide the etic-emic insider-outsider perspective. And, um, you know, I'm finding what I'm picking up, why I think I really resonate with this, and I jumped at the chance or invited Seth to come on the podcast, and he he, he suggested you, you would be better suited, which makes perfect sense, um, uh, why I jumped at the chance to, to get word out there about this. And just so we're abundantly clear for those of you listening, uh, this <laughs> there's no kickback from me other than <laughs> punya karma. <laughs> no, <Yes>. This is not. <laughs> I am just happy that... There are those among us who are sharing the fruits of their scholarly labor with people who are hungry for it, with people who have been eating junk food for a long time and they want a good, healthy, wholesome meal. And so what I'm, what I'm saying is that I think that um, um, yogic studies and now Buddhist studies online and, for example, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, they're all spaces where people can learn um, in a sound scholarly paradigm, but um, not in a reductionist. So I call it rigor without reduction, where the insider perspective is welcome. It's part of, 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 of the life of tradition. Uh, but at the same time, we're not, uh, in those spaces, we don't facilitate in the transformation of consciousness or the inner experiences. That is welcome as part of the discourse, but we present academic content. The reason I bring this up because it's really important because there are students who want that. And so, for example, I recently established the space called the School of Indian Wisdom, and they literally want the academic piece. They want the parampara lineal piece. They want to understand about experiences and practices. And so this is not that kind of space. This is a space where you can learn about the history, the philosophy, the practices of Buddhism in probably a... a um, a spirited manner, uh, but from from sort of uh, more of an etic paradigm overall. Would you say that's correct? Yes. Yeah. And one of the things that's always attracted me to religious studies is that there's so many ways that we can study religion. And there's so many ways in which authority with regard to religion is constituted, right? Um, as a skilled and experienced Buddhist teacher may have gone may have studied in a lineage that goes back hundreds of years, may have done multiple three-year retreats, may have spent you know, hours and hours meditating and making these things real for themselves. And that constitutes one kind of expertise. And then there's also a kind of expertise that those with a really academic background, those trained functionally as historians have. Um, there's also the kind of expertise that comes from living in a tradition. And as we know, like probably lots of Buddhists who are very perfectly good Buddhists, don't know anything about the history and practices. And that's not to say that they're bad Buddhists at all. There's just multiple ways of being an authority or an expert with regard to a religious tradition like Buddhism. And so we at Buddhist Studies Online, you know, want to be upfront that we're coming at it from a sort of a historically grounded academic background uh, that we think is not better than these other approaches um, 
it can be complementary, it can be mutually enriching, it can, you know, sort of stand on its own if you're really not into the practice thing. Um, but that's kind of the space that we see ourselves as filling. And it does feel at least from the reception we've gotten so far that there is sort of an enthusiasm for this and a hunger for it. Well, that's your strength. That's your training. You know, that's, that's, for me, the, the question isn't whether or not, it's not either or in terms of academic uh, knowledge or, or spirituality or direct experience. They, um, they operate in different modes and they can be mutually fulfilling, right? Mm-hmm. One pertains to the outer life, empiricism, what we can know about tradition. And, and one pertains possibly to the inner life or direct experience or spiritual evolution. And so um, what, what I think is great is that, yes, it's an edict paradigm. This is pertaining to, you know, um, uh, the, you know scientific inquiry, Right, empirical inquiry in the history of, of religions or in language training, but having said that, I think we have so um, we've evolved as a discipline to understand that the emic paradigm is vital to the edic uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Without it, what are we doing? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that is definitely part of how we see this. So one of the touchstones I think about in terms of teaching is that you know, a humanities education of which history and philosophy are a crucial part is about the discipline transformation of the knower. So you're always learning about something that is outside yourself and you're trying to let it speak on its own terms. You know, how do these texts um, speak to their particular historical context without us necessarily projecting what we want these texts to say? So we're learning about something outside ourselves. But then in that encounter... Um, you do want to allow for the possibility that it changes you. And I do think that that's what separates us from people, say, in the natural sciences, where you can just put a sample under the microscope and you have this totally outside perspective on it. Um, No, part of the reason that uh, Buddhism sort of does have this contemporary sort of uh, cachet is that it does seem to speak directly to the issues that a lot of people experience, both personally in their lives and then in our contemporary society. And so part suffering. of it, yes. Suffer, suffering isn't new, is it? <laughs> no. No. And um, <laughs> seems and, seems to be one of those, you know, really uh, sticky problems that yes. um, you can read these texts and it feels like they're speaking directly to you. And indeed, that's actually an important thing to remember as a historian, is that you know, Buddhists throughout history experience these texts as speaking out of their historical context to people sort of in the present, whether that was, you know, 700 AD um, or, you know, 1500 AD or, you know, 2021. Uh, The fact that these texts seem to speak to people is an important part of understanding how they have functioned through history. And one of of the points I like to drive home um, when teaching about, say, Purana or the Sanskrit epics is that there's no shortage of ingenuity with uh, storytelling. I mean, how many hundreds of thousands of stories end up on the cutting room floor every year? Probably in every age. Uh, but the stories that last are the ones that still speak to us. The teachings that last are the, are the teachings that still speak to us or a subsection of, you know, uh, of humanity. And so I received a, a note in my first semester last year tutoring at the at the OCHS, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, and it it really moved me. It was it was from a student, uh, very very heady, 
student, intellectual type, uh, questions parsing out, you know, he, it's very important to understand exactly what this means. And um, uh, scholarly minded, not a practitioner at all. And in his note at the end, his thank you note, his email, unsolicited, he said, look, I wasn't expecting it to at all, but just studying this stuff intellectually changed me. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. That it's, 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 it seems impossible to engage um, what I think of as wisdom traditions, or uh, certainly traditions of Indic origin, without, without, without really engaging their the, the, their purpose, which is the transformation of the person in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in some ways, you know, I think that a venture like this that um, you know sort of engages popular audience. Uh, whether through Buddhist studies online or through my teaching here at the University of Wyoming, does actually influence my scholarship. Because sometimes as scholars, we get ourselves into this little, you know, kind of historical philological bubble where we almost forget the ways in which people feel and experience these traditions and that they have kind of lives of their own. Um, you know, we, we say that meaning emerges in the encounter between the person and, you know, the text or the practice or the the piece of um, material culture that yeah, po- we don't want to overly focus on, you know, kind of the thing without forgetting that the thing only has a life in how it is received, used, reimagined, all of these things. Right. The, the, the slicing and dicing of texts and ideas, um, it's a useful enterprise. Ultimately, it, its fruit is the ways in which those ideas impact people, how people relate to them. It's a human experience we're after, right? Ultimately. Um, and you, you make a point, a really interesting point about scholarship and academics. And, and so there is this tension, uh, uh, both between the, the etic emic paradigm, perhaps, though I think our, from what I can tell, our discipline has come a long way in terms of softening that divide in a responsible way, of course. But the, the divide that I think that we are, we are just starting to learn, not we as in you and I necessarily, we're obviously a bit ahead of the curve. But we as a discipline, we as an academy, uh, I think what we're learning and forced to learn is that um, we need to um, we need to bridge what we do, uh, you know, in academic enterprise and the public, the public, uh, the value, like what is the fruit of this? What is the value of this? Um, so many times I do an interview with someone, um, their book's fascinating and it fascinates me. But only upon prompting are they able to articulate why this is important. I mean, it's evident to me why this is super important to the human condition or the human experience or uh, an aspect thereof. But it's difficult because we're so trained uh, in the scholarly mode. We're trained to look at the tree, the branch, the twig. <laughs> but then, you know, once in a while, it's nice to see the forest. And, and I think that's the, and, and, and teaching a public forces us to do that. And for me, it's not about short selling your findings. It's about um, illumining them in an accessible way. And I, I don't know how, what your experience is, but I think there might be a bit of a, 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 a I want to say, a tension there at the academy. Yeah. And I think that that uh, tension gets amplified when, uh, there's almost this this stigma of speaking to the public, right? If you're saying something that's broadly popular or accessible, you must be dumbing it down in some sort of way, and you're 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 almost like selling out. You know, there's a, a kind of cachet in the academy to be doing something that's so obscure, 
And, you know, the, the folks that do work like that, I have endless admiration for them and cite all their work and I wouldn't be able to do what I do without them. But I think there's, uh, we should be more open to folks engaging more diverse audiences and speaking to people uh, just to make the academy more relevant, more open, more accessible. And I, I, I do come back to this term, you know, accessibility for Buddhist studies again and again, because it is sort of central to our philosophy that accessible means figuring out where your public is and kind of going and meeting them there so that they can meet you. If they don't ever encounter you, there's nothing that they can learn from you. Um, and, you know, often, often it'll involve sort of an attitudinal change, right? That somebody who comes in maybe from a practitioner background or maybe not knowing a whole lot about the academic side, academia can be so forbidding to those people. It can seem so unwelcoming. People can feel sort of scorned if they haven't read, you know, the latest you know, theory and method and the, all the latest publications. And so just kind of opening things up and saying, hey, we think that we have something valuable to teach you and we're, we're welcoming this encounter. We're going to come meet you where you are so that you can come and, you know, experience the richness that this field has to offer. That right there, that way you articulate, I'm realizing more and more that it's a way of being uh, for much of what I do, but it was never consciously sort of embarked upon. So this that's the very mandate of of new books network to 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 teach the public what 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 academics do to 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 share with them what's in these books that aren't accessible or perhaps not of interest because they're not able to see the value at first glance and independent of that you know if i think about it consciously now that i'm speaking to you that's why you know me being the goof that i am i create this online content but i'm never consuming any online content so literally in 2020 i discovered that the ochs has this treasure trove of online courses and i'm emailing them hey why don't you come on this podcast to share this knowledge with the public that you're sharing this knowledge with the public uh, same with seth right um come on the podcast like share with a broader audience what you're doing but i can't tell you how many colleagues over the last year have mentioned something in passing about the podcast and i had no clue our colleagues was listening our colleagues were listening and you're one of them obviously because it's pitched to the person who um doesn't have that background and yet but that demonstrates that should demonstrate that they're still learning from it although it's accessible they're still finding value in it. And I, I can't help but think of just having deja vu. We were just having this exchange. So recently I agreed to arrange these online weekend schools at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. So there's uh, so the last one a couple of weeks ago was on the Hindu goddess. They're quarterly. Three months before it was on yoga studies. Um, uh, yoga studies, <laughs> Freudian slip, yoga studies. And uh, Amanda Lucia was, uh, was part of that uh, entourage as well. The next one will be on the Mahabharata. But this is something where we're really innovating in terms of inviting like top-notch world-class scholars and inviting them to speak accessibly that anybody interested can understand. And I feel like we're sort of all at just the, the just we're just at the front end of this wave that is, from my perspective at least, it's it's inevitable. It's it's what's it's part and parcel of what's happening in in these times, would you say? Yeah, I think that um, 
you know, one of the things that went through my head as I was thinking about, you know, signing on to direct Buddhist studies online, which, you know, involves all sorts of skills that I was not trained in at the academy. Um, I'm creating Amen, websites. I'm, I'm running social media accounts. Um, I'm, you know, handling the financial back end. There's all sorts of new skills. It's, it's um, like, you know me. And the other thing that I was scared about was that if I was to, you know, engage in what perhaps my colleagues might see as this popularizing venture, oh, I would get looked down upon by the academy of, you know, being this kind of sellout. Um, or people having the very, very valid critique of, oh, I'm participating in the ongoing commodification of these religious traditions. You know, so the podcast that I heard you talking about, uh, Seth's name with Amanda Lucia, this white utopias, is talking about all the ways that, you know, in particular, um, Euro-American white culture has looked to Asia to, you know, sort of take what they want, suppress what they don't want, sell it for money, sh- change it all up, and to do this in ways that perpetuate colonial legacies, racism, difference in all of these ways. And so I was very nervous to step into this space. But part of what I thought to myself is, you know, this is happening regardless of whether I myself do it. Better and responsible people do it. Yeah, better better to get involved and to help shape the curriculum because, you know, we at Buddhist Studies are trying to design a curriculum such that people can go through multiple courses and come out with, you know, something approaching a well-rounded knowledge of Buddhist traditions. And, you know... I will admit to being, you know, scared for what the future of the humanities are, right? In some ways, the way that we have been preserved in the ivory tower has, you know, kept us safe in certain ways. And as academia, as the ivory tower, as the humanities sort of crumble, we do have to look to this new future. It's just happening. Um, But I'm, you know, count me as worried that it's going to just turn into... um, you know, a bunch of uh, people selling nonsense on Instagram. Well, um, um, so I've got good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that people are already selling a bunch of nonsense on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the good news is there are people uh, looking for more than fast food or able to recognize nutrition when they come across it. And um, I'm sharing this in my personal experience. Um, I rang in 20. 20- uh, 16 completely broke. Uh, I finished. Uh, I, I got this this uh, this great uh, funding um, award from the Canadian government. It's called Shirk. You might have heard of it. It ran out when I finished in 2015. I defended in November 2015. Uh, my credit was maxed out. My lineup credit was maxed out. I had even borrowed from people that I knew. That's how ridiculous my situation was. And I rang in the new year with four cents, literally four pennies in my checking account, access to nothing. And if it wasn't for my mother's very generous, you know, she was going to New York to visit her sister, you know, this holiday gift, I don't know what I would have done. And that was a wake-up call for me that there are no jobs. Uh, Rumor has it that I'm bright and hardworking and relatively personable. Uh, We'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. But um, there, I have to find a way to exchange my skills Mm-hmm. in a sustainable way to create value for people. And so, but but uh, same with me. When I started, I thought I was so sheepish about letting uh, colleagues know that I was doing online uh, 
education, I, I really, for me, it was as, as potentially stigmatized as selling myself, not just my knowledge, but if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And it took a while to overcome that. And I had a lot of colleagues say, I really, I really value what you're doing. And they were very supportive. And then it wasn't until COVID that the world was flipped on its head, where people were like, you know, that funny little side biz you do? Well, we need to do it for our undergrad program now. Can you help? And people uh, established brilliant scholars like Artie Dond now has this podcast. And it's a public service. It's a service to all of us who are teaching online. It's a service to people who just want great, accessible storytelling from the Mahabharata, interspersed with these insights that no doubt it's taken her a decade or two to come up with that she just sprinkles in, right? And so times have changed. I mean, I don't, I think... The attitudes are shifting as far as I can tell. Either that or people are being very kind to me because they want to be on the podcast. <laughs> but even then, if they want to be on the podcast, it means there must be some change going on. Yeah. No, it's um, the, uh, these fears about the sort of commodification of the academy neglects the fact that like the academy already does commodify people and especially graduate students and people who are trying to make it in academia that is so relentlessly kind of Wait, are you saying Cruel. are you saying that the universities are businesses? <laughs> yeah, you know, we're we're out there. You know, it's credentialing folks who can, you know, afford to be there, you know, all of the kind of critiques that we have of education in this kind of new sort of popular online space can if you if you look deeply, um there there's no institution that is immune from these kinds of critiques. And so uh, commodification reproduction of colonial racist norms. Uh, these are things that we need to talk about in the academy as well. Um, and I'm glad that people are increasingly talking about them. You know, for me, it was it was a necessity. Uh, I've been teaching privately because people want, you know, a hybrid of the scholarship and, and, and the, the um, lineal insights as well. So I've been teaching on and off privately since about 2010. I stopped for the PhD because PhD, hello. But um, yeah. Um, I probably started teaching online in 2017, and it was abundantly clear to me that there was tons of people who wouldn't be able to access this, or at least my classes, any other way. And it came to the point when I'm like, what am I doing? Uh, people keep asking me, uh, where are these courses? Where are these courses? Like, how do I find them? And I'm like, okay, well, let me let me unite them I'm under a, a brand, an umbrella in a school so people can have that visibility and find it if they so desire. And... It's deeply rewarding in that there are people who just want to learn. They just want to learn this stuff. They're so grateful. You're yammering on about something that you're not even sure if anyone cares about. And they're so happy. uh, They'll happily pay for it Mm -hmm. because where else are they going to get it? Yeah. One of the other sort of if you think about it, crazy things about the university is that we decided that 18 to 22 year olds, that's the period where you get to learn about history and philosophy, and then you to get a job and you have to do that for the rest of your life. Um, and, and indeed, you know, so I teach here at the University of Wyoming. And sometimes you get a class of people that they're there because there's a diversity requirement, they don't necessarily want to be there. And half the job of teaching is, you know, trying to give, you know, a good show so that they're interested and they do the readings and, and hopefully you can get them hooked. Um, and fortunately, you know, I, I think we in the business of Asian religions just are lucky that we have cool stuff to teach and students do get hooked. But there's so many more people out there than 18 to 22 year olds who want to keep learning, who want to explore. And 
that they're excited to be there. If you post readings and then optional readings, they're going to do the optional readings. They're going to ask if there's anything else they can explore. It's such a, a delight from what I've Indeed. heard to teach the yogic study students because they are just so hungry for this knowledge it, and they're willing to, you know, read difficult materials that are work, doing the hard work of placing things in historical context and not simplifying things, you know, into easily digestible categories all the time. Um, and so this expansion of just people uh, is a benefit because you get you get folks who really want to learn. Well, yeah, this was um, what prepared me for this was um, experiencing continuing studies. That's where I taught um, from about 2010 to really 2017. Um, uh, and what is it? You know, people are, are paying money to learn. Um, they're, they're not trying to please anybody. They're curious. They want extra reading. Some not so much, some are too busy, some are more auditory learners, but for the most part, they're on board and they want to learn. That's that's why they're there. And so that really opened my eyes to to possibilities. And now doing that online, you're just able to reach people from anywhere who want to learn. You know, it's um, it's taken me a while to put it together in my conscious mind, but it's it's clearer and clearer to me with each passing day why I lit up when I saw your peak studies, why I lit up when I saw the OCHS courses online. I literally interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed both of these founders. Uh, I interviewed Seth and he's like, hey, do you want to do a course for us? I was like, sure. I interviewed Nick Sutton on the podcast. He's like, hey, do you want to tutor for us? I'm like, sure. Um, because this is, this is, um, this is the way of the future. And this these spaces are not in addition to the academy. They're not, they, they are the means whereby the academy can be renovated, right? Because, because uh, two things are happening. Um, online teaching has obviously infiltrated the academy big time, and that won't go anywhere. Public engagement will grow without question. Because, you know, what happens to species that don't adapt, right? They go the way of the dodo. Um, but in addition to that, these rich spaces will be founded by um, intelligent, dynamic people who have so much to share. And, and they both can be given, they can create the opportunity to, to do what they're here to do and save people from eating junk food mm-hmm. on one yeah. fell swoop. Yeah. And I've been, you know, so... Um grateful to see that there are these kind of initiatives popping up places, you know, courses, uh, there's the sacred rights program where they're, you know, sort of retraining scholars to write journalism for popular media. And whenever they post on Twitter, they hashtag smart in public, you know, that the people who study things deeply and are trained as historians uh, can, can bring that to bear on contemporary issues in a way that enriches everyone's discussion and experience. So what course is coming up? What are you teaching? Yeah, so the first course that we will be doing will be taught by myself. Uh, It's BSO, Buddhist Studies Online 101, Intro to Buddhism, History, Philosophy, and Practices. And what this is meant to be is a kind of a broad overview of Buddhism from its development in 5th century BCE India as it spreads and develops uh, through the rest of Asia and then into the sort of modern, globalized world. And it really is modeled on the intro to Buddhism class that I teach here at the University of Wyoming, slightly different format, 
in so six sort of pre-recorded 90-minute video lectures that people can download, watch on their own time, fit into their very busy lives, and then six live Q&A sessions uh, with me. And then the whole thing is sort of recorded, and then it continues to live online if people want to take a self-study option in the future. And associated with it are you know, particular readings that we assign and make available to people. And the goal in a course like this is really just to give people a broad overview and to whet their appetite. Any, any one you know, topic from that course could be turned into its own course, but at least in giving people this broad overview, they're going to say, oh, you know, I didn't even know about Pure Land Buddhism. That never gets talked about at all. People are interested in Zen. They're interested in Vipassana, but oh, I'm interested in this other thing. You know, I'd love to explore more about that. Um, and to give people kind of a sense of the big picture that they can then explore more deeply in the future. And hopefully this will sort of set up uh, future courses. And I'm happy to talk about the the three courses that we already have lined up after mine. Yeah, sure. In a moment, we'll talk about that. But uh, I want to touch on something you just shared in terms of, you know, Zen, Vipassana, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, so in this course, is there a particular tradition or sect that you emphasize? So we take a academic-based non-sectarian approach uh, where we're not saying, you know, oh, these people were great, you know, it started off good and then Buddhism degenerated or Buddhism was lame. And then, you know, it finally evolved into the, the form of the Mahayana that was the winner. Uh, we, we take a sort of step back and look at how different Buddhist communities have imagined the cause of suffering, the state of the good life, and the path from you know A to B. And just looking at how that changes and develops over time, what are the different techniques that Buddhists develop in order to help them along the path? In what ways did different Buddhists think that new practices were necessary or interesting or compelling? And, you know, giving that kind of broad overview without plugging into one tradition as kind of better or worse than any others. Mm. Um, I have to take that course. Uh. <laughs> yes, we have an early bird special right now. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll get right on that. <laughs> I should say it starts on May 3rd and then goes through June 11th. So it's six weeks, but it will be available afterwards uh, for cool. self-study. So uh, you preempted a question that I was going to ask um, with respect to uh, future courses. Maybe I'll just uh, ask the question broadly and then you can expand as you like. Um, 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 so what is the vision? And we've talked about the vision of the school in terms of pedagogy. What is the vision of the school in terms of other faculty? Um, who else have you invited to teach? What do you th- where do you think that'll go? Um, what courses do they have lined up? And in addition to the faculty, because uh, this is something I'm thinking about a lot myself in terms of the, the newly minted School of Indian Wisdom. Do I want programs like, you know, in my mind, are there these five classical Indian subjects that constitute a certificate from the school. Um, so, so talk about faculty, talk about um, your, your thinking on programs and certificates, uh, uh, however you'd like to dive in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll start with curriculum and then go to faculty and then the specific courses that they teach. So one of the things that yogic studies has done, and this developed kind of organically because Seth was just teaching courses and later was like, oh, we could put this together into a kind of sequence that approximates you know, a master's degree. It's not the same as what you'd get if you took the the two years to study at Harvard or SOAS, but um, it does have this sort of comprehensive approach. And so 
Um, they put that together. And we at the outset of Buddhist Studies Online are planning and developing courses to fit a curriculum. And so it'll involve a certain number of 100 level courses like, you know, uh, BSO 101, Intro to Buddhism, Intro to Philosophy, Buddhist Art, you know, Zen Buddhism, you know, sort of broad topics. And then we're going to have 200 level courses that focus in on a particular text. So, you know, maybe the Bodhicharya Avatara or, you know, Shantideva's famous text, How to Be a Bodhisattva, um, the Heart Sutra, uh, maybe the the Blue Cliff Records in the Zen tradition. And so those are opportunities for students who have a bit more of a background to delve really deeply into one particular topic. We're also planning to add language courses. Um, so on the yogic studies side, Antonia Rupel is this amazing Sanskrit teacher. And so anyone who wants to get this sort of advanced certificate in yogic studies takes a bunch of coursework, but then also takes Sanskrit, you know, spends a lot of time studying the language in order to be able to appreciate the language that a lot of these texts were written in. So we want to add, you know, perhaps Pali will come first, um, and then maybe Tibetan. You know, I come from a Tibetan studies background, so that's, you know, my interest, um, you know, with a capstone project that students will do their own research for. And so we're sort of building towards that, um, something that students can do on their own time, but feel like they're getting something that is broadly representative of the richness and diversity of the Buddhist tradition. I just have to quickly mention, while I give you a breath there, um, uh, Antonia Ripple, you know, I think uh, uh, in terms of uh, Sanskrit pedagogy and especially online Sanskrit pedagogy, she's like the best thing since sliced bread, you know, I came yeah. across, I came across her reader and I'm like, just by the way she set this up, this woman knows how to teach. Like she's a user-friendly person, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And I had her on the podcast and um, it was about a year later that I discovered or um, uh, uh, an ex-student of mine put um, Seth's yogic studies work on my radar. Silly me, like uh, here, am I, here I am podcasting about such things and I don't even know they exist. But um, uh, I had her on again to talk about her courses at yogic studies. Um, and for me, it's a, like... Well, why would I go and start Sanskrit courses at the School of Indian Wisdom when she's doing a fantastic job? So for me, it really feels like, you know, you want yoga, there's yogic studies. You want Hinduism, there's the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. You want um, Buddhism, guess what? Behold, <laughs> Buddhist studies online. You want mm -hmm. some lineal jazz, you know, there's a School of Indian Wisdom. So it really feels like there's a burgeoning community of, of online space holders. Um, Please continue with your, mm -hmm. your with your with your sharing of the vision. Yeah, and so I will also just add that, like, yeah, having these different schools that are sort of really focused in terms of their mission and what they offer, but that are also sort of friends with each other, right? That there is this ecosystem where you know, hey, you might be a, a Buddhist studies online student, but we're going to send you to to do Sanskrit at Yogic Studies. You know, that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time, or we don't have to have a million you know, one-on-one -on -one courses on the same thing that we're all competing with each other. There can be this really productive, collaborative space that I hope that all of us, you know, working in this sort of popular uh, space can, can work on. That's sort of, that's certainly, um, that's certainly uh, sort of my MO in terms of that resonates. That's part, that's why I want to promote people doing good work because it's not such that I think it's kind of a, a an antiquated and short-sighted view to think of these spaces as competition. 
yeah. the cream will rise to the top. You want that to be you. Be the best at what you do. Uh, and if and if that's not you, then find something else you can do really well. Mm-hmm. And and have the students enjoy where they can get the best, right? I mean, that's just my view. It's, it's student-oriented. Let them get the best wherever they can. And if you can offer a piece of that, fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I'm on board with saying that Antonio Rupel is the best. <laughs> um, and, but so, yeah, I'll continue up with talking about uh, faculty. So we're looking for people that have a strong academic basis in publishing about their area of expertise. So these are, these are not, you know, sort of Johnny come lately's. These are folks who have deeply thought about and engaged with the traditions that they're studying. Uh, we also, when thinking about faculty, we try to think about who is going to live up to that goal of accessibility, right? Who is going to have that engaging personality that even through a screen is going to make you sort of excited and interested and not looked down upon. And so finding folks that have that kind of uh, dynamism and openness to this mission um, is really important to us. And so we've got the first three lined up. Uh, So after Buddhist Studies 101, we'll have Buddhist Studies 102, which is Buddhist meditation in theory and practice. And the person teaching that is Dr. Daniel Stewart of the University of South Carolina, who teaches a very similar course there and has written a lot about histories of meditation, about Goenka and Vipassana. And we know that a lot of people coming to Buddhist studies online will be there because they have some interest or dabbling in meditation and mindfulness. And so a course that looks at the history and diversity of Buddhist meditation practices over time is you know, this, the, the thing on deck after 101. Then we're, we have Sonam Kutru of the University of Virginia, teaching an introduction to Buddhist philosophy for Buddhist studies online 103. And whereas my course is going to focus on, you know, the history, the ideas, the practices, the material culture, the literature, you know, kind of getting a taste of all the the richness of the tradition. Um, For those who want, you know, a real deep dive into the philosophy side from someone who is trained in Buddhist philosophy, Sonam's course is, I think, going to be incredible. And then Third, we have our first of the the 200 level courses that are these text-based courses. And so Jay Garfield of Smith College and Harvard and and various other places, um, uh, Jay teaches everywhere and is amazing every time he does it, is going to teach a class on the Bodhicharya Avatara, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And I took a whole course on him or a whole course from him on the Bodhicharya Avatara and Buddhist ethics while I was a student at Harvard. And so when we were putting together this list, I was like, we, we got to have Jay Garfield. Um, I think people are going to really love this. And so those are the first three. And we're already in talks with potential faculty to teach future courses. And we want to, our goal is to have, you know, representative diversity of the Buddhist tradition of different perspectives and methods and approaches and, you know, all the kinds of richness that the tradition has to offer. I love that. Um, I love that established scholars are seeing the value in this and wanting to be part of this um, for so many reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, how fulfilling is it to have your work or your scholarship or your thinking reach a broader audience who really um aren't sitting there bored. They're actually looking for you. <laughs> They're looking for the stuff you have to say. Um, uh, fancy that. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Is there anything else about the school um, that you wanted to mention? 
sorry, not the school, the, the platform, but essentially. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we have gone back and forth, you know, talking about it, like the platform or the institute. I think we're, we're calling ourselves the, um, the Sister Institute of Yogic Studies. Um, one thing that we do want to do is create a sense of community. So all of the courses have associated community pages where students can sort of talk with one another, get to know each other. And one of the things that that you may be experienced in a yogic study space is that once people have taken a course, they often take more. And uh, indeed, there is a way that you can be sort of a monthly member of the site and have access to all of the courses. And so, you know, people know each other from having taken many courses together. I think that's one of the nice things about having these relatively small and focused educational platforms, right? Because there are things like, you know, um, David Eckel teaches a, a great course on Buddhism and the Great Courses Network. I taught for Charles Hallisey's Buddhism Through Its Scriptures on Harvard X. Um, so there are these great courses on Buddhism out there, but they tend to be sort of one-off things that don't necessarily foster community outside the one course that you're taking. And so we do want to try to create this sense of collaborative learning where people are in communication with each other as they go through this curriculum, hopefully. Well, um, the, the the Sangha is one of the three refugees, isn't it? Yes. It's necessary, mm-hmm. <laughs> in addition to the Shastra. Um, uh, fantastic. Um, do you want to say a quick word about uh, your own research? Yeah, yeah, no. So in my, you know, my, my day job, uh, I am a scholar of Tibetan Buddhist pilgrimage. And so in particular, I focus on the goal of transforming perception in Tibetan Buddhist pilgrimage of the 13th to 19th century. So, you know, broadly speaking, it's about how do you change the way you see the world? And Buddhist traditions are really interested in how you change the way you see the world, because on the Buddhist view, suffering is in large part the result of a fundamental misperception about reality. And so Buddhists have developed all of these techniques for trying to change the way you see the world, meditation being the most famous, but lots of others. And so for those not as familiar with Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhist pilgrimage to holy mountains is based on the idea that you're going to this mountain. And what it really is, is a sacred mandala, the palace of a divine being who is continually preaching the Dharma. But to most people, it doesn't look like that. It looks like a pile of rocks and snow. And so the challenge that is posed to Tibetan pilgrims going on these pilgrimages is to try to see past their ordinary surface level appearance to the deeper reality that is within. And in order to do that, they have to sort of transform their perception. And so what my research does you know, completed for my dissertation research. I, I graduated last spring and am currently revising that for um, the book is looking at a number of different genres for how they go about trying to um, facilitate this kind of transformation. In particular, how they use both language and the landscape itself in order to facilitate these transformations. Fascinating, Kate. It's so uh, I have I had to chuckle to myself when you 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 introduced uh, the responses. You know, in, in your day job, yeah. um, you know, the more I think about it, the more I realize that we are inverses of each other uh, professionally. Mm-hmm. In that, by day you're you know you're a professor and you moonlight running this um, this uh, public facing um, online school, mm-hmm. and it's funny. Uh, I, technically, I moonlight as a scholar, <laughs> produce a bunch of you know articles, chapters, a couple of books, sort of um, on my own dime, so to speak, right? 
mm-hmm. conference and do all this uh, very fulfilling work. But how I do that, I say I moonlight, although most weeks the puppy spend more time doing that than anything else, because mm-hmm. my bread and butter, my, my sustenance comes from our online education and coaching. So it's so interesting that we are sort of um, uh, the, the uh, composites of each other in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that there should be, you know, lots of space for academics of various stripes to um, think about their identities in all of these different ways, you know, and to engage different publics in these conscious ways, um, such that there's not just like one model for how to do this. Well, I gave um, uh, my alma mater, so I did my BA and, and MA at, um, at uh, the U of T, University of Toronto. Uh, and then I went to the University of Calgary to work with this uh, really, really bright uh, scholar Beth Rollman. She was actually a student of Anmonius. You mentioned Anmonius earlier in the podcast. So mm-hmm. apparently, um, uh, we were sort of um, uh, how to say in the same parampara mm-hmm. <laughs> in some way, shape, yes. or form. Um, uh, so my alma mater for my doctorate is Calgary, and so they were doing a, a talk where they were inviting alumni back to give a talk to current grad students. So I, I finished, I think, in 2000, 2015. And so last fall, I gave a talk, and it was called The Self-Employed Scholar. And um, what I was sharing was basically the talk I wish I had when I graduated. But it wouldn't be possible then because it was a different time, and it wasn't possible then. And I've stumbled upon this thing that's working for me. Uh, It may work for others. And basically, it looks like this. Like, you can be a prolific, well-connected, well-respected scholar, and support yourself um, um, through education, through online education, or a variety of coaching, you know, uh, consulting. Um, and honestly, I it, maybe it was a perception, maybe it was a reality. I didn't think it was possible to be productive and respected and connected and not have sort of a place at the academy, a professorship to hang your hat at formally. All of my uh, affiliations have been teaching jobs. So at at the University of Toronto, at at the OCHS, and um, maybe it's just me, but I I think that this is now possible in a way that it hasn't been before, but I'm too in it to see it. So I'd love your perspective on that. Yeah, I think that um, folks who are trying to make their way kind of outside the traditional academic model. I think of, you know, Karin Myers currently at the Mungalum Center as, you know, a great innovator in this as well, um, is is so important for the field because in some ways the academy is its own set of blinders, right? You know, if you have people all doing like the same thing, it's impossible that that's not going to affect the way that they see the world and do their scholarship. You know, I think an ongoing concern, you know, and this isn't just for scholars of Asian religions, and not just for scholars of the humanities, it's for people generally, is, you know, how do, how do we live in this, this world which often feels like it doesn't have like a safety net, right? And, and you're up in Canada. Um, it's different here uh, in the U.S., in, in, in yes, we do have running water here. Yes. We do have plumbing here. <laughs> yeah. Um, here in Wyoming, we uh, don't have a sales tax <laughs> or don't have any, any state tax, actually. Um, there is a sales tax. And so, you know, it's a different way of, of, of doing things. And so, like, what's, what's scary is for people who want to step outside the institution is, okay, I can, I can get this gig. And, like, how do you put these things together, Right. And so I think that the 
oops, sorry, I hit my microphone just there. Um, the academy should be doing work to help fill those gaps or um, make it possible for people to put things together to develop a sustainable income, you know, starting with most obviously training graduate students in a way that lets them see this potential alternative future. Well, one of the questions in the talk that I gave to the Calgary um, grad students, um, it was last fall. One of the questions was, was, well, what's the path forward in terms of um, advisors speaking with advisors? And, uh, you know, I probably maybe a bit more charitable than most, but I honestly don't think that um, it's the job of established scholars to, f- to they, they don't know. Yeah. Never, they haven't had to do this. So how could they advise their their you know their their students on on these innovative paths? How would they know? They're, mm-hmm. They they have established jobs, right? And so they need to basically send them to people like you and I and Seth. Yeah, which is know? why it's great that Calgary had you coming to talk about that um, or folks at career centers or you know just thinking kind of outside the box a little bit. Um, uh, because yeah, you know, and I, I currently have a university job, but Hey, you know, budget cuts are coming for all of us. And, you know, I might not have this, you know, job in a calendar year. Um, so yeah, thinking about ways of making a kind of a a life for oneself, a a scholarly productive and responsible life for oneself uh, outside of the sort of illusion of safety that is the academy uh, is, I think, you know, ever more important. Yes. And and at the same time, the sweet spot for me is, this, I think I mentioned this in, in the last podcast I did, actually, the sweet spot is this, is this dovetailing of innovation and tradition, because these structures are important. Um, 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 uh, it, it's not such that, you know, all the colleagues I collaborate with, or 90% of them are established academics. Right, so it's that conversation with with established academics and those in um, more innovative paths, whether out of um, uh, desire or necessity. Um, fascinating stuff. Um, is there anything else about uh, your work or the platform that you'd like to share before we close for today? Um, no, thank you so much for for having me on to talk about Buddhist studies online. I. Uh, do want this to be something that scholars see themselves as interested in and invested in, in terms of public-facing education generally, and, and Buddhist studies online in particular. Um, and I'm really excited about what the future holds for, you know, the the Institute of Indian Wisdom, for Buddhist studies online, for yogic studies, and for all the, the, the cool things that are going to be accomplished and all the great sort of educational encounters we're going to have with our students. So uh, it's just been a joy and a delight to, to talk about these things with you. Yeah, it's um, exciting times afoot, for sure. It's very exciting uh, I guess being in the space that I'm in, I maybe come across these things a little sooner than some do. Um, but it's it's happening, right? We're, we're no, I'm, I no longer feel like I'm in the jungle with a machete, right? There is, there is a thriving settlement, you know, set up, and it'll just grow. It'll just grow into a town, city, etc. Let's not strain the analogy too much. Um, uh, so. Uh, We'll formally close. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me.
So for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Kate Hartman uh, about this fascinating new learning platform um, in the podcast notes called Buddhist Studies Online. The URL is actually Buddhist Studies Online. There's a course upcoming in May, uh, an intro to Buddhism course with uh, Dr. Hartman herself. And uh, I'm your host, or at least the host of the uh, New Books and Indian Religions podcast, uh, Dr. Raj Balkran. Feel free to, to seek me out online, um, study with me, uh, keep the conversation going. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the fate of online education. Take care. Thanks.